Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, we're talking with Dr. Frederick Chetigny, clinical veterinarian at the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec. Hi, Dr. Fred. Thank you so much for being on Aquadox today. I'm really excited to talk with you. Well, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. I've kept up to date with the podcast so far, and I really like it. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying it. So as someone who doesn't necessarily consider yourself as an aquatic medicine specialist, how did you get so involved in fish medicine and welfare? Yeah, well, when I was in vet school, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do at first. And I realized I liked more exotic species and diversity of task and pathology, a lot of things, basically. So I wasn't quite sure which one I wanted to pick. And then I found out about laboratory animal medicine. And I realized it was a pretty good mix of all of my interests. So I started trying to work toward getting into that field. And before I could get into the field, I felt like I needed some research experience. And here, I may go back a little bit in the Quebec education system briefly, because most people in the States and even here in Canada, they have some kind of undergrad before they go to vet school. Here, you don't necessarily need to do that. The high school is different. We have something called CJEP where it's either a pre-trade program or some kind of pre-university program. And here to go into vet school, either you go straight out of CJEP, or if you can't do that or you want to do it later, then you go after you had some years at university. So I went straight out of CJEP. I didn't have any undergrad. I didn't have any research experience. And I felt like it was important for me to understand kind of the research side of things to have some research experience myself. So I wanted to do a master's degree. That didn't work out right after vet school. So I worked in private practice for a bit less than a year. Then I finally did a master's degree and I did it looking into fish analgesia. So looking into how to treat pain in fish. So found an investigator that had been working on that for some time here in Canada, University of Prince Edward Island. So I went and did my master's degree there. After that, I managed to get a job as a clinical veterinarian at University of Montreal. And then I recently moved to the University of Sherbrooke where I still hold a similar position. Seems like a little bit different path than one might expect from the United States, but still getting to a point where you're getting to work with a bunch of animals, getting to practice their veterinary skills and, and do really cool research. Yeah. yeah. I don't do any research currently because I've just started recently and I need to really kind of get used to the new place and work on a lot of other things. But eventually once I'm settled in, I'd like to do some kind of welfare research on the side. The only problem is even though fish are more and more used in research, there are actually no fish being used here currently. So my research won't be about fish. It's mostly keeping up with the literature and then giving presentation about my past research, but I'm not working on a day-to-day basis with fish anymore. Hmm. Well, that's okay. We still love you anyway. <laughs> Hopefully somebody opens up a lab with fish at some point here. I, I don't know about that. It's going to happen anytime soon. Well, they'll listen to the podcast. They'll hear the episode. They'll see that you want to do this. They'll recognize it's a huge importance to have fish in laboratory medicine, and then it'll all work out for you. It would be great. Yeah. <laughs> so for our listeners who might not be as familiar with lab medicine, what are some of the types of species you work with? And is there anything that they might find surprising about the field? Probably. What most people don't know is that, well, there's a lot of controversies about whether or not we should do any more research. So the point is, it is important. Nobody does it for the fun of it. And there are veterinarians involved everywhere that is being done. And our main job of the veterinarian and the animal care team, there's animal health technicians and animal husbandry staff too, is to make sure that those animals are basically well kept and ensure optimal welfare. So if there's any disease that happens, we're involved, we treat them. Every investigator has to submit a protocol to animal care committee. It's a bit different the way it's sell in the States and Canada, but it's very similar. So they have to write everything they're going to do, why they're going to do it, why they need to use animals, why they need to 
use the number of animals that they need to use. And then a committee, including a veterinarian, several other people that do research with animals, some people that don't do research with animals, usually a graduate student, and at least one member of the public is also on the committee. So that there's a wide diversity of people that brings different point of views to make sure that everything makes sense. Then often we ask for some changes or some clarification. Eventually, protocol is approved. Then there's also some follow-up to make sure that people do what's in the protocol. Sometimes there needs to be some changes made. We realize something's not quite working. We need to improve something, either for the research or the welfare of the animal. So there's a lot of people involved. Basically, it's not just scientists doing whatever they want willy-nilly. Animals are very well protected. And again, always be there and then people who care about animals are involved in the field. And it's also important in a way because a lot of those investigators usually don't really have a good background with animals themselves. So a lot of them may be human doctors or things like that. So it's pretty valuable to have the experience of veterinarians and other people in the field because they know what they want to get out of it. And a lot of it I may not quite understand because it can be very, very specific models for some disease, some kind of very niche genetic disorder or something like that, that I won't quite fully understand. But then you meet with them, you talk about it, you figure out what they want to do, and then you help them do what you need to do with the animal side. So veterinarians are especially useful for treating diseases, helping with anesthesia and analgesia protocols, helping teach them various techniques, so how to handle mice, for example, how to do injection, how to draw blood, all of that stuff. So it's, it's very varied. We don't always deal with animals on a day-to-day -day basis. Like there's a lot of kind of administration work too. So looking at the protocols, trying to improve just the way the animal facility works. A lot of it's biosecurity. So making sure that the animals are clean in a way so that they exempt some pathogens we don't want so that they're not sick or that could interfere with research. So then once our facility has a certain health status, you need to make sure that any animals you bring in don't bring in other pathogens that you don't want. Uh, so it's a very, very, very kind of job. Yeah. And I'm really glad you mentioned the part about the committees and having a member of the public. I worked about a year in lab medicine and everything's very hush hush. You have to have clearance to get into the building. And even, you know, once you have that, you don't, you don't get to see everything. And that can cause a lot of questioning and, you know, what's happening behind the closed doors, but that's really not the intention. Everything is done for the safety of the animals and ensuring that you're not bringing in pathogens, you're not bringing in diseases. So it's nice to, to reassure our listeners that everything's done for the animals. There's protocols in place to help them. Yes. More and more, there's push to try to be more transparent. So again, that people can know what's happening, know that things are in place. Again, they won't be able to just stroll down facilities. That's not going to happen, but at least be more transparent about what it is we're doing, how it is we're doing it, and why it's important. And as I said, we do it because we need to. If we didn't need animals, we wouldn't use them. But right now, we still really do need animals for some more complex research. So me and other people are trying to push for more transparency, even though, again, it won't change what we're actually doing. The animals are still well taken care of, but at least the public could see the other side. Well, and I think that's something that, you know, in the veterinary profession at large right now, we're really striving to do more of in zoological facilities and aquariums. You know, we're not trying to hide some things. And when you're doing a certain procedure, the general public can't necessarily watch that happening because that could provide a lot of stress to the animal. But yeah. But we want to say, hey, like we just did this really cool procedure on a stingray. It's never been done before. We saved its life. Like, how cool is that? And 10 years ago, that never would have made headlines that never would have been publicized. And now it's actually like, 
here's some really cool photos on Twitter, on Facebook. We want people to see that what we're doing is good work. It's for the animals. So I think it's an interesting time in this field to see as we progress. Yeah. And it's good you mentioned zoos and aquariums because it is a bit of the same thing. I'm trying to push more and more uh, arbitration. So making sure that whenever you work with animals, you try to handle them uh, before the procedures, because like mice, most of the time, they don't want to deal with us at all. So we try not to handle them too much. But if you do handle them a bit more gradually, they can learn that basically it's not that bad and they'll be less stressed. The experiment will go better. Mice will feel better. Experimenter will feel better too, because it'll be easier to handle. So just as in zoological, uh, well, zoos and aquariums, they do try to train them to handle them so you can do procedures like some people already talked about on the podcast. So that's something else that I try to push more and more for laminal medicine so that everything just goes better. So a lot of things they do in zoos and aquariums can also be done in, in the laboratory setting. And linking to zoos and aquariums, a big thing is enrichment, which is usually just mean trying to make their environment less bare in the way and more stimulating for them and more appropriate. So that's also a big thing that they do in zoos and aquariums that we also do in the laboratory setting. And we can learn a lot from each other. I actually reached out to a local zoo so that we can talk to each other sometimes when we have similar species to see how we can like both share and improve each other's enrichment. And for like mice and rats, what's a common enrichment item for them? Uh, a lot of it is nesting, although it could be said it's not really enrichment because it's kind of a basic need for them. Uh, you can also have little houses with wheels on them, something just to house itself so they can go eye, they usually put their nest in it too. Some cages can have lofts, so it's kind of a second floor level where they can go, which can be nice, especially for moms sometimes when they get away from the pups briefly and then they can come back down. Um, other than that, anything they can gnaw on basically can be good enrichment, which also is a basic need. Sometimes the difference between basic need and enrichment can be a bit fuzzy, but it's anything to improve their welfare in general and the environment. I'm glad we've had the conversation about the similarities between lab animal medicine and exotic medicine, because in vet school, I feel like we often treat them separately, but at their core, they're both about ensuring animal welfare. And speaking of welfare, you wrote a paper called The Controversy of Fish Pain, a Veterinary Perspective. Before we get into the actual controversy, how frequently are fish used in lab protocols? Yeah, actually, um, Animal Care Agency in Canada, they report number of animals used every year. So more recent reports from 2019, and it was close to a million. It's pretty close to the amount of uh, rodents that are used. So it's a lot. And that's just in labs in general. So in labs, it's mostly smaller fish like zebrafish. So a lot of other research is also done in the field. So tracking wild population, for example, research related to aquaculture, so how to raise fish better. So there's a lot of research uh, where fish are used as models, but a lot of research also where fish are just researched to improve fish conditions in general or other aspects related to the fish themselves. So it's, it's a lot of them. It sounds like there's a lot. Is there an established welfare protocol for fish as research models? There really isn't. It's not quite for a lack of wanting one, but it's mostly for a lack of information. And also fish welfare is a fairly recent field. People might not realize, but even animal welfare is a fairly recent field. We didn't have analgesic drugs that were used very often. Basically 30 years ago is kind of when it started. So it's still pretty recent. And we start with some species that basically everybody agreed that we should treat pain because they probably have it. The closest to us is mammals because 
first of all, we understand more about their physiology, but also we can relate more easily to them. And then eventually that moved to other kind of more alien species like reptiles and birds. And now fish and amphibians are kind of the latest one that we're trying to treat pain, but it's extremely hard to detect. Some people still debate whether or not they do feel pain. And even when you decide that, yes, they do feel pain or something similar enough to pain that we should try to treat it, we don't have a lot of basic information. Fishes are an extremely diverse group. So if for some example, I know I can give that dose of morphine to a zebrafish and it should work, that absolutely doesn't mean I can do the same thing for a rainbow trout or to a salmon or to a shark. So you need a lot more information for each specific species or at least species related to each other. You can extrapolate a bit better. And then once you have that, then you need to do more research into looking into analgesic protocols. So does that drug work for that type of procedure and at what doses and for how long? Some people are trying to do research into finding out that kind of information, but a lot of them trying to go a bit too fast because we don't have any gold standards. For some other species, we have some well-evaluated tests that we know that if you test that, you Usually, it's a pretty good indicator that pain is present. And then if you treat it, and then you don't see that indicator kind of basically lighting up. Then you'll be able to tell that, oh, we corrected pain. The animal is back to its normal state. But for fishes, we don't know that much about their normal state. And even basic things like respiratory rate or heart rate, for most species, we don't have them. I did research on rainbow trout, and I did use respiratory rate. But I had to base it on what it was before and after. I looked up a few other papers that reported using it, and none of them had the same numbers, and sometimes not even close. So just kind of stepping back, making sure that at least for the main species we use in research, that we have some of that basic data, I think would be really, really useful. There's a whole issue with that in the debate. There are mostly two groups involved right now. One of them I call the proponents, which strongly believe that fish feel pain or against something similar to pain. And they're trying to prove that. Another group I call the skeptics that do not believe they feel anything like pain, trying to disprove it. So often, unfortunately, as the result can be difficult to interpret, that bias can really affect the conclusion. So if somebody's not aware of the debate, just look up the result of one study. It's like, oh, great, that drug seems like it works. It seems like it works great. I'm just going to use that at that dose, and it's going to work perfectly. But if you don't take the time to really read the article or be aware of who published it, sometimes the, the results are somewhat exaggerated and are not as valid as they, they look at first glance. Hmm. That's interesting. It sounds like it's a much more difficult debate and nothing's really been determined yet compared to some other species. Yes. So before we go a little bit further into into the debate, can you just give our listeners better definitions between analgesia, anesthetics, and like why you would use each in a different situation? Yes. So anesthesia is really relating to loss of sensation. So usually we call it loss of consciousness. So when you go under for any procedure, the person or animal is basically unconscious or asleep. During the procedure, they don't, well, they're not conscious of anything they feel, but their their nerves are still registering information. There are some drugs called local anesthetics, which that can be used to completely desensitize or so block sensation in a specific region. And then analgesia is really to treat pain. So it has nothing to do with consciousness. It has to treat a specific type of sensation, which is pain. Okay. And so my understanding is that it's fairly common when you're doing a procedure that you are putting some sort of anesthetic into the water for the fish. So are we more focused then on whether or not you should be administering analgesia 
I'll say some people are trying to be more concerned about it. The problem is as clinician, it's really hard for them to then tell people what to use because we don't really know very clearly yet. As far as anesthesia go, that one's easy just by convenience because you can't really do anything on a fish if it's not anesthetized because they won't let you, they will flop around, they're very slippery, you just, you just can't do it for the vast majority of procedures. So that's never really been in question. People just have to do it, otherwise they won't be able to do anything with the fish. Now, whether or not, a lot of the, sorry, the general anesthetic, we don't always quite know how they work. So it's not always clear, again, if they are registering anything while they're conscious, not quite clear. The main one that is used is in the family of vocal anesthetics. So the same type of drugs we just talked about that they would use at a dentist. And then the fish just doesn't move and seems to be unconscious, but it's not 100% clear how it works. There's some other anesthetic that can be used. Some of them are essential oils, for example, clove oil. Again, seems to have similar effects, but nobody always quite understand how it works exactly. But the fish seems to not react to stimulus, seems to be unconscious, and then you can do whatever procedure you need to do. But then often you won't give any analgesic drugs because we don't know which one to use. We don't know exactly how they work. And in the research perspective, you also need to make sure that you're not affecting a research. So all the time you're trying to make sure the animal is okay, but there will be certain protocols where the animal can't be 100% okay because for example, it's a disease model. So you're trying to mitigate everything that they're not studying for whatever disease model it is. But obviously you can try to affect the disease because then if you treat that, they won't be able to study it. And again, if you introduce anything in research protocol, that's why some investigators sometimes are a bit worried because they don't want more things introduced that could be more biased. So they'll be unwilling to try new things, analgesia being part of it. That's been a problem with a lot of other species, but a big part of a clinical veterinarians to try to explain to them that pain is also a bias. It is significant bias. And if you don't treat that, then you change a lot of other things. So normal behavior of the animal, metabolism, your immune system, all of that's affected by pain. Another thing is usually when you use animal for disease models, you're trying to compare them to what is going to be done in humans. And in humans, you will treat pain. So having an animal model where you don't treat pain is also just not a good comparison to humans. So it's really important for people to understand that yes, you always need to control pain as much as possible, unless you study pain. Again, that would be an exception. But most of the time you try to control it, problem with fish right now, unless most species, is that really, it's really hard to tell them what to use. The good thing I found from my research is that most of the time, it's always clear if the drug they use did anything good to control pain, but it's very rare that they found any side effects. Just to follow up on that, so you're saying it's clear that they can see that it has good effects and it's difficult to see the side effects. So what are some of those things that you're seeing that that means that it was doing a good thing for the fish? Yeah, uh, usually it's what I said before, it's that it seems like when they did the noxious stimulus, so whatever was irritating the animal, that it changed the parameters in some way. And then by treating it with whatever analgesic they used, then that seems to have reverted back to, to normal is what they usually see. So it, it can be different depending on the parameter they use. So some changes in behavior, some 
other changes in parameters like cortisol level, some other things like that. So if it seems to go back to normal and they're closer to whatever the animal was before the irritant, then that's how it shows that it probably works. Any side effects in this case would be unwanted effects. So things that would probably make the animal worse or just unexpected things that you don't want to see. And those seems to be very, very rare. So for example, for some drugs like opioids, like morphine, other ones, it can make people and animals throw up. So that could be unwanted side effects. We barely see any of those research. So far. But again, most of the time, can't be 100% sure that we're really helping the animal. But as long as we don't arm whatever fish we're using, I think if we do that, we can gather more data and encourage people to try new things. Okay. That's, that was really interesting. I don't know much about this debate. I'm intrigued to see where it's going to go. Yeah. Well, most veterinarians are not super involved because usually as a profession, we just try to err inside a caution and treat pain where we think there will be pain. The debate is mostly academic in a way, and it revolves around consciousness, so whether or not fish are conscious, because a nociception is basically just resisting something that's irritant, and then to have pain, you need to be conscious and have emotions linked to that. But the big problem with the debate, as with any other species, is that we can't define consciousness in humans. We just can't. There's multiple journals just talking about that. So that in itself is a huge, huge block to any debate you want to have because you can't you can debate as much as you want, but nobody will ever really be able to conclude anything. So we can conclude that some of them mostly talk on the side of skeptics who think fish don't feel pain because they don't have a neocortex, which is what we think is mostly involved in pain in ourselves, which again, nobody can define pain in humans and everybody agrees that it is subjective. For example, my definition of pain is not the same as yours. So if I can't even have the same definition of pain between you and me, then between me and a cat, for example, already a pretty big leap, and then between me and a fish, an even bigger leap, and then it's even harder for us to assess it. For example, most of the time for a cat, it's not always that easy. A lot of people won't still be able to tell, even some vets sometimes, it's hard to tell. The owner, since they spend more time with the animal, would be able to tell better sometimes than the vet in, in the practice. But then again, you do that with a fish, it's really, really, really difficult. So I can understand sometimes how people mostly think about treating pain in fish because they just, they don't notice it and they don't expect it to be there. You've told us about the debate, but it seems like we have so much difficulty even defining basic parameters. So where do we go from here? Yes. So if you base any debate on the presence or absence of consciousness, you will get nowhere. So there will be no end to it, like you just said. So we need to move to a more objective measure. And some people have proposed basically using two questions. One of them is, is the animal healthy? And does the animal have what it wants? So if you can answer that, then you can ensure their welfare and you don't have to talk at all about consciousness. So you can actually do some more clinically relevant things and more practical things to answer those two questions and to make sure animals are healthy and happy in a way. And you don't have to go into the whole physical semantic debate of consciousness because a lot of energy is spent in that debate. And like you said, I don't think it's very productive or useful. They can go back and forth for decades more and all of that time won't actually help anybody or any animal. So I'm really pushing forward again for people to gather more data and to push forward into more practical, practical things. That seems like a more practical framework, but to ask the question that our listeners came for, would you say that fish feel pain? I'd say they probably have a similar system, if I want to be kind of correct with the whole debate terminology, because again, if you use pain, you will trigger 
some people because the definition is not great for animals and it's easily debatable in fish. So the word pain itself, I use it often when we're talking to more lay people in a way, but if I try to publish anything or talk more in academia, I make sure that I acknowledge the fact that the term is problematic in the debate. So even if they only have nociception, not pain, if it affects their health, if it affects their well-being, then I want to treat that. So to me, the distinction itself doesn't matter that much for what it is that I can do and that we can do to improve welfare. So I would say to the answer, do they feel pain again? With the definition we have, I can't insert that clearly, but we can still do something to improve their welfare if they have an irritant or if they have an injury. Okay. That is, that is great because I think people listening to this, they're going to wonder, like, do we have an answer? And the answer is, well, we don't. Don't but. Yeah. Well, they definitely feel no deception. That's been agreed upon by everybody. There is a little exception there. For some reason, nobody's been able to show that uh, sharks have nociceptors, so the receptors for nociception. Because there's a big difference, I didn't talk about before, but there's teleos fish, so bony fish, and then elasmo branch, which are more cartilaginous fish, like sharks and rays. And nobody's seen nociceptors in sharks and rays so far. Interesting. Which is weird. I can't explain it. We don't have that. But teleos fish, we do know they have nociceptors. So everybody agrees that they do feel nociception, which is still something we can potentially treat. Hmm. So for rays and skates and sharks that have not yet been proven to have nociceptors at this point, is it common protocol at this point to use anesthetics if you're doing some sort of procedure just because it's established for other species? I would say again, anesthetic, you don't have a choice because otherwise they move. So that people definitely do that, but there's basically no research analogies. I found one paper in one type of shark, but people haven't really been pushing for that because again, we haven't shown nociceptors and it's probably already difficult enough to get resources funding to do that type of research that they focus more on the, the more well-known species in the library setting or even aquaculture. So a lot of it is done in rainbow trout and zebrafish just because that's what we use most. So that's what we're most familiar with, but not much has been done for, for sharks and rays and those types of fish. Hmm. That's super interesting. Well, thank you for you know, describing this debate to us. I know it's something that we've touched upon on a couple episodes on this podcast, but haven't really dived into. And I think it's just going to be a recurrent thing that comes up a bunch between pick a species, do they feel pain? Because the aquatic field is just so new. So thank you for giving our listeners a bit of a better explanation about that. Before we let you go, I know that you're doing a lot of other clinical research. So could you give our listeners just a brief overview of some of the things that you're currently working on or have done recently? Yeah, I investigated the use of lidocaine, so local anesthetic, the same thing they use a dentist in the rainbow trout. Because as I said before, often when you do a surgery, you try to also desensitize the location where you're going to cut the animal, basically, to make sure they don't feel it, and then just makes for improved welfare for the animal. So that was the general idea. Nobody had really tried that before. So we decided to do that using rainbow trout, which is an important model for aquaculture and research. And it's also a, a bigger model because zebrafish are super small. They're probably like an inch tall at the max. So it would be pretty difficult to infiltrate any kind of drug during a procedure. It wouldn't be very useful for them. So we'll start by looking into whether or not there'd be side effects. Because as in any drugs, eventually, normally, if you give high enough a dose, then it won't be good anymore and it will cause some side effects. So try to use a higher dose, see what those side effects would be if there was any, and then eventually moving with a model to see whether or not whatever dose we try could be useful. 
we saw no side effects whatsoever. Fish seems to be pretty resistant to local anesthetics. So that was interesting finding. And then on the behavior side, so for this one, it was also ingestion around the dorsal fin. Then this time they were recorded for four hours. So there was a camera recording from the top of the aquarium for four hours. There were some GoPros in the tanks, so I could get some closer look to calculate respiration rate at some time points. And then I looked at to whether or not they fed at different time points after the injection. Uh, as to how they moved, I used the tracking software after that, so I could objectively see how they moved before and after each feeding event. And in the end, it was shown that there also didn't really seem to be many side effects because there was one group that was injected with only saline, the other one with the lidocaine drug. And the one with saline seemed to be more stressed, probably by the injection. And the thought was that the other group, probably lidocaine worked because they behaved more normally closer to the group that didn't have any injection. So probably they were desensitized. So it looks like what we should use as a therapeutic dosage. Hmm, that's super cool. So was the hope then from this research you've demonstrated that there's likely something to using lidocaine in rainbow trout. Can we now start applying this to other species and doing projects, you know, reproducing your same methods, but just with other species of fish? to try to start establishing those gold standards you've mentioned before? Yeah, that would be the goal. Or just if anybody asks me sometimes if doing surgical procedures, I could say, let's do a pilot project. We could try this infiltration. Again, not in person sure it's going to work, but if we can show the few fish that it doesn't seem to affect them negatively, then let's try it. It doesn't have much time. It doesn't have much money either. The cost of lidocaine are pretty low, but you're potentially improving improving the welfare of whatever animal you're using. So in, in essence, we don't even necessarily need an answer to the debate with this. We're just saying we've seen that there are no negative side effects. Likely they do feel pain. So therefore, if we give them this local anesthetic, it's not doing any harm and it could actually be doing them a lot of good. Yes, it, it does seem that it could, and it could be another tool in our toolbox, the same way we use in other species that we could also use in fish to just improve our surgical procedures. Well, Fred, this has been absolutely amazing. I've learned a ton. And though we don't have answers to this debate, I think everyone listening can be you know, a little bit more informed about whether fish feel pain and can start having these conversations. So thank you so much for being on Aquadox today. Yeah, well, it was a pleasure. And those articles that we talked about today, so based on my research and just the debate, they're not all uh, free to access. But if you reach out to me, online, so on ResearchGate, other platforms, we can share those articles. So anybody can still access them, even if they can access them from the journal directly. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Shetney for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you've got an extra moment. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.